This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'll begin with one apology, two questions, and a menu of things to come. So first, the apology. I've learned over the years that I can't reliably count past three, and also that I need to count in order to keep myself from going off the rails. So if you're one of those lucky people who can count to four, I apologize for complicating things by using more than two or three sets of two and three. Second, the questions. The first question is for you. Why are you listening to a talk on contemplation? I don't mean this entirely rhetorically, because it's good for you to be aware of why you brought yourself here, either so that you can upgrade your motive or consciously confirm the one that you have. But in case you've been caught without a conscious motive for being here, I'll provide three acceptable ones and will strongly suggest that you adopt the third, since then you'll be wanting the very thing that I hope to give. First, perhaps you're here for amusement or for fellowship. Perhaps you've made the very strange calculation that this talk was the most amusing thing available tonight. Or perhaps you don't care about the talk at all, but you just like hanging around people who go to talks. Second, perhaps you ran out of things to say at your last cocktail party. You're here because you'd like to know a few things about contemplation so that you can approach your next cocktail party with confidence, or at least with something to think about if you end up in the corner. Third, and recommended, perhaps you're here with a practical aim. You want to contemplate. Perhaps you tried contemplating on your way to this talk, but you're not sure whether you actually contemplated, since you're not really sure what contemplation is, much less how to do it. And you thought that St. Thomas's account of contemplation would be a good place to start, both because he's Thomas and because he's a saint. You're right. And this is why the second question is aimed at me. Since it's awkward to answer one's own questions in front of others, I'm gonna pretend that the question came from you, even though it obviously hasn't. Why should we spend time examining Aristotle's account of contemplation in a talk whose subtitle is St. Thomas on Contemplation? Good question. I have three responses to this subtle accusation of a bait and switch. First, it's helpful to look at Aristotle's account of contemplation alongside Thomas's account, because only by comparing Thomas's account with one of its close lookalikes can we begin to appreciate its peculiar contours. This is what the Folgers commercials in the 70s and 80s did. It's only when your usual coffee is secretly replaced by Folgers crystals that you realize just how bad or how good your usual coffee is. It's important to note that you wouldn't have arrived at this realization if your coffee had been secretly replaced by vodka. A comparison is helpful only when the two things compared have both significant similarities and significant but subtle differences. I'm suggesting here that Aristotle is Folgers rather than vodka. If you're curious about what the significant similarities and subtle differences are, stick around.
The second reason it's helpful to look at Aristotle's account of contemplation alongside Thomas's is because Thomas had Aristotle's account at his disposal. Since Thomas was neither forgetful nor sloppy, we can assume that the differences between his account and Aristotle's weren't happenstance, but were deliberated on and chosen. And it's more important to pay attention to what people choose to do than what they merely happen to do or be. Third and last, if what we ultimately want to do is to contemplate as Thomas understands contemplation, it's helpful to know what account of contemplation we're likely to fall into if we aim for Thomas's and miss. Aristotle gives the best naturalistic account of contemplation on the market. If we fail to understand our own activities in light of the incarnation, as Thomas does, we'll likely end up Aristotelians. This brings us to the third task of the introduction, the menu of things to come. As you might have guessed, there will be three parts, one in Greek, one in Latin, and one in English. Kind of. Part one will provide a sketch of Aristotle's account of the activity of theoria, which I'll refer to as contemplation. Part two will feature Thomas's account of the activity of contemplatio, which I will also refer to as contemplation. And I'll focus here on how Thomas's account differs from that of Aristotle. In part three, I'll offer some practical advice about how each of us can better dispose ourselves for contemplation, which I will refer to as contemplation. Part one. It's common practice to begin discussions of obscure topics with obscure definitions. I'm going to ignore the common practice and begin by describing a common experience, and then by offering an Aristotelian commentary on that experience. Here is the entirely hypothetical common experience. Suppose you're listening to a talk and you begin to zone out. Your gaze pans the room. You're not looking for anything in particular, and you're also not trying to tamp down your attention on anything particular. It's as though you're just taking in whatever's there. Suppose, after an indiscernible amount of time, your gaze pauses on a chin. It's being th held thoughtfully by the chin owner's left hand. Your focus then moves to the watch strapped to the chin holding left hand, and you think to yourself, Jimothy has a watch like that, a watch with a bird engraved on the clasp. Suddenly, you direct your attention back to the face with the chin, and you realize that the one whose parts you've been taking in all this time is Jimothy. Notice how you're no longer zoning out, how you've been brought to, so to speak, by the concentration of your attention on one thing, Jimothy with everything else receding into the background. Suppose now that the speaker is still droning on, that Jimothy is seemingly entranced by the droning, and that you take the opportunity to do what would be supremely awkward under any other circumstance. You rest your gaze on Jimothy. You don't think anything about him, you just take him in as he is. All right, what would Aristotle say? For those of you who do like to count along, 
the Aristotelian commentary will come in two parts. First, we'll distinguish the contemplative act from the acts that surround it. And second, we'll note what the activity of contemplation is like. By a cheap imitation of Socratic questioning, I will demonstrate that you, dear listeners who haven't zoned out, have already identified the contemplative act in our hypothetical experience. Here is a multiple choice question. The contemplative act was the intellectual act corresponding to which of the following? A, the judgment, Jimothy has a watch like that. B, the judgment, that's Jimothy. C, the word Jimothy, whenever it appeared in a judgment. D, the word Jimothy, spoken alone. Or D, all of the above. And all God's people said, (laughs) Do you need to read the script? (laughs) The correct answer is D. But before I explain why, let me briefly mention why you would receive partial credit for E, all of the above. Aristotle uses two different phrases to refer to what we call contemplation. One phrase, theoria, refers to the network of intellectual acts that we perform when we're intent on arriving at a simple intuition of one thing. Theoria, or theoretical thinking, is contrasted with practical thinking, namely, a kind of thinking we undertake when we wish to do or make something. A second phrase, noein adiaretai, refers to the crowning intuitive act of theoria. Noein means to think, not in a sense of thinking something through, that would be dia noein, or judgment-type thinking, but rather in the sense of thinking of something or, in contemporary terms, to be mindful of something. Again, na'in isn't just seeing something as the conclusion of a syllogism, but just to see it as it is. Adiaretai roughly means something not put together by my own effort. These are the somethings of which we can be mindful because we can have them in mind without putting them there by making judgments about them. So when we nain and adiaritan, we have in mind something that unifies itself without our intellectual effort. In this talk, I'll refer to theoria as the life of contemplation and nain adiaritai simply as contemplation. Back to the multiple choice question. Given the meaning of contemplation for Aristotle, we can see why D is the only acceptable answer. We can contemplate Jimothy since he's the kind of thing that we can simply intuit. We don't need to make a judgment or reason through a syllogism in order to think of him. We can't contemplate judgments since judgments don't hold themselves together on their own. In order to think, that's Jimothy, or Jimothy has a watch, we have to pull together two ideas, Jimothy and having a watch, or Jimothy and that, into a new unity. We also can't contemplate Jimothy in his own right at the same time as we're making judgments about him. As long as we're focusing on drawing together two ideas into a judgment, we can't focus on either of the ideas independently. 
moving on to a very short true-false section to test whether you've learned anything thus far. True or false? We can contemplate the watch on Jimothy's wrist. True or false, number two. We can contemplate the generic concept bird. I'm going to cruelly leave you to ponder these answers on your own, both because they're debated in the literature and because it will allow you to experience the impossibility of both resting with an idea and wrestling with a problem at the same time. Let's put Aristotle on the spot now instead of you and consider what he would say in response to the following essay prompt. In three paragraphs, describe what the activity of contemplation is like. It would, of course, be silly to limit Aristotle to the number three. But if Aristotle was willing to put up with the silliness, I believe he would say the following. First, contemplation is our coming into contact with what is most real. Throughout his corpus, Aristotle characterizes different knowing activities as though they were different ways of touching the things that we know. Suppose after this talk, while you're waiting for the metro, your gaze settles upon a house sparrow, or in this case, a metro sparrow. Suppose you mind the sparrow for a while. What kind of touching is happening here? Aristotle certainly wouldn't say that you're standing there grasping the sparrow. He would say, rather, that you are letting yourself be touched by the sparrow. You weren't the primary agent of the contact, but neither were you entirely inert, since you allow your attention to rest with the sparrow, and since you resist turning your attention elsewhere. The primary agent of your being touched by the sparrow is, of course, the sparrow. The sparrow causes itself to be known, both because it's real, that is, it is what it is without you, and also because you are capable of turning toward it, or at least not turning away. If Aristotle were writing this out in a paragraph, he would certainly include a very hefty footnote explaining why God can't be an object of human contemplation. Although God meets the real criterion, he is what he is without us, he isn't one of those things toward which we can turn our attention. We can't turn our attention toward God, says Aristotle, because we can only turn our attention toward sensible things and their causes. And, according to Aristotle, God isn't the efficient cause of the world. Since God didn't make the metro sparrows, the metro sparrows don't reveal to us anything about God. End footnote. Second paragraph. Contemplation is related to, but different from speech. According to Aristotle, contemplation can occur either alongside or apart from knowing the names of the things we contemplate. Consider several scenarios involving contemplation and speech. And I say several because there will be more than three. If we contemplate, or we can contemplate a metro sparrow while looking at it, even if we've never seen it previously and don't know what it's called. We can contemplate the nameless metro sparrow while we're lying awake in bed, remembering its image. 
We can decide to call the sparrow a Jimothy and use this name to summon its image from our memory whenever we wish to contemplate the Jimothy again. The following is also possible. Suppose that tomorrow you overhear someone say, Jimothy, hearing the name of what you have contemplated can be an occasion for intuiting again what we've previously intuited. I say can be an occasion, though, because it's possible and common for us to hear words without actively being mindful of their meaning. It's also possible to use words correctly without ever having intuited their meaning. In this last case, the word itself isn't an instrument of contemplation. True or false, number three. We can contemplate what a meme is. And the third and last paragraph. Contemplation is the happiest activity of which man is capable because it is restful, because it's the exercise of our highest capacity, and because it makes us like God. A brief note on this first phrase. When Aristotle says that contemplation is the happiest activity, he doesn't mean that it will make us happy after we contemplate, like taking a cold shower will make you feel good afterward, but probably not during it. It's rather that contemplation is the experience of happiness. On to the three phrases. First, contemplation is restful insofar as it is free from any intellectual motion. When we're frantic, our thoughts tend to dart here and there. We make an abundance of judgments in an attempt to ground ourselves. Every act of contemplation grounds our attention in one thing alone. The resting that occurs in contemplation is so profound that if you stop to think, hey, I'm contemplating, you're not. You can only be aware of having contemplated. Second, contemplation exercises our highest capacity. According to Aristotle, each thing and every person is happy insofar as it is doing what it is specifically designed to do. Steak knives are happy cutting steak and are less happy when they're cutting tomatoes. Human beings are happy contemplating and are less happy when just using steak knives or thinking about how to prepare dinner. This isn't to say that practical affairs are bad, but just that contemplation exercises more fully than practical affairs the part of us that is highest, namely our capacity for contemplation. Third, contemplation makes us like God. What Aristotle means here is that when we contemplate, we do briefly what God does eternally. It's not for Aristotle that God makes us like himself, but rather that we make ourselves like him. How so? For Aristotle, God is thinking, thinking, thinking. God is at once a thinking subject, the object of his thought, and the activity of his thinking. God is utterly partless, so his thinking of himself is one eternal intuition. The only thing that God does is contemplate himself. For him, there is no time, since thinking, thinking, 
thinking never changes. And since we're only aware of time when we're aware of change. When we contemplate, we become like God in this respect. For however long we're contemplating, we aren't aware of time. The hands of a clock might be ticking away, but we won't be aware of their movement since our attention is wholly consumed with the one real thing. And since the one real thing isn't changing its unity in front of us, we also won't notice any motion there. Contemplation, that is to say, is better than a sensory deprivation tank. Part two. Thus far, Aristotle. What saith Thomas? Let's begin by noting a fundamental similarity between Aristotle's Greek terms and Thomas's Latin ones. Like Aristotle, Thomas has two terms to indicate respectively the contemplative life and the defining moment of that life, the intuitive act. Thomas's term for Aristotle's theoria is contemplatio. Etymologically, the life of contemplatio is the life of templing something. We temple something by cutting out a space. And I only say this, of course, for those of us who haven't built temples recently. And since I'm among that unfortunate group, I imagine that the activity of templing is analogous to an eaglet mantling. That is to say, spreading its wings over a fish that has been dropped into a nest by a parent. The primary intent of the eaglets mantling the fish is to keep other birds' beaks off of the prize. But a necessary consequence is that the mantling eaglet has nothing to do but to look at the fish. This, analogously, is our contribution to the contemplative life. Mantle the fish that has been dropped in your nest. Thomas's term for Aristotle's noain ariaretai is intellectus. Thomas believed that the etymology of intellectus was to read into a thing, as opposed to reading a thing's surface. So when we intellect a thing, we see what it is. We see into its heart without having to read across the surface and to compare parts by making judgments. Thomas's word for the kind of thinking that does involve judgments is ratio, and a hack for remembering this, in case someone wants to quiz you, is that you can't understand a ratio without moving your attention from part to part and then thinking them together. So much for terminology. I'd like to turn next to what Thomas would say in response to Aristotle's three claims about what contemplation is like in an apparent application of the pseudo-Thomistic motto, never deny, seldom affirm, always distinguish, Thomas will say yes and to each of the three descriptions that Aristotle gave of contemplation. What I mean by yes and isn't just that Thomas adds something on top of Aristotle's account, like adding whipped cream to coffee ice cream. Thomas does add to Aristotle's account, but the addition transforms the entire account, much like adding vodka to Folger's coffee. 
with apologies for switching up the former metaphor. So to begin, in response to Aristotle's claim that contemplation is our coming into contact with what is most real, Thomas says, yes, and God is among those things that are most real. Thomas contends that we can contemplate metro sparrows and God, although definitely not at the same time and definitely not in the same way. We can't contemplate a sparrow and God at the same time because contemplation is always focused on one simple thing. And no matter how many hyphens we put into the phrase God in this sparrow, we can't make God in this sparrow one simple thing. Our attention is like the lens of a camera. It can only focus on one part of the frame and at one distance at a time. The reason why we can't contemplate God in the same way as we contemplate metro sparrows is that God doesn't exist as one of the things in the world, capable of revealing himself to us directly through our senses. Nonetheless, because God is the maker of metro swallows and other things besides, and because some aspect of the maker is always revealed in what he makes, God does reveal himself to us in the things he makes. There are two implications of Thomas's claim that are worth noting. First, since God reveals himself in the things he makes, any created thing, properly seen, can be the means of contemplating God. This isn't nothing, because we certainly can't contemplate a sparrow by means of a unicorn. Second, the intent to contemplate God requires an act of faith, an act that would be ridiculous if we were intending to contemplate the sparrow in front of us. When we set out to contemplate God, we have to choose to turn our intellect, that is to say our attention, both toward the uncreated cause of created things and also away from focusing on the created things in their own right. To repeat, we have to choose to turn toward what we don't see and choose to keep our attention there. Moving on. In response to Aristotle's claim that the activity of contemplation is related to but distinct from speech, Thomas says, yes, and speech takes on a unique primacy when one seeks to contemplate God. Naming takes on a greater role in contemplating God because we don't have either a sensory experience or a sensory memory of him. Since our attention is apt to wander unless we fix it upon a definite image or definite name, the ordinary way we fix our attention on God is to say his name. In the context of contemplation, when we say, Father, we're not trying to draw the attention of the Father to us, but rather to draw our attention to the Father. Two points of clarification. First, when we name God, we're not trying to draw our attention to our concept of God, but rather to God himself. Jesus saves. The concept of him doesn't. Don't get them mixed up. Second, our pronunciation of the name we use to fix our attention on God 
doesn't really matter as long as the name actually fixes our attention on God. Someone once told me that his grandmother, who was very poorly catechized, used to pray the rosary with great devotion, saying, big bead, little bead, little bead, little bead, little bead, little bead, big bead. (laughs) I'm not recommending it, but neither am I condemning it. (laughs) Lastly, In response to Aristotle's claim that contemplation is the happiest activity of which man is capable because it is restful, because it exercises our highest capacity, and because it makes us like God, Thomas takes a big breath and says, yes, and when we're contemplating God, the rest is far deeper, the activity far higher, and the manner of our divinization much more radical than Aristotle ever imagined. He explains, First, Aristotle is correct that we're happiest when we're most at rest. But we're not most at rest when we're contemplating sparrows. We're most at rest only when we're contemplating God, in this life by faith and face-to-face in the life to come. A weak case could be made that our intellect is is as much at rest when we're contemplating sparrows as when we're contemplating God insofar as the intellect's rest could be seen as just the absence of judgment. There is no case to be made, however, that our will rests as completely in beholding a sparrow as it does in beholding God. The will is at rest when it enjoys not just the activity of beholding, but the thing beheld. Perhaps it was because Aristotle never fully enjoyed what he beheld that he sought to behold so much. Second, Aristotle is correct that we're happiest when we're exercising our highest activity, but our highest activity isn't the contemplation of what is most real to us, namely swallows and the unified things that present their unity to our senses. Our highest activity, rather, is the contemplation of what is most real in its own right, namely, God, who is supremely one and the source of all unities. Our intellect and our will, on their own, can't contemplate God. Our intellect and our will, surrendered to the action of the Holy Spirit, can. Surrender to God is our highest activity. Third, Aristotle is correct that we're happiest when we're most like God but we are made most like God, not by imitating him, but by contemplating him. Imitating what God does leads to a superficial likeness, while contemplating him makes him dwell in us. And just as we eventually become physically, like the steak that we allow to dwell in us physically through eating, so do we eventually become spiritually, like whatever we allow to dwell in us spiritually, through contemplation. But perhaps that analogy doesn't go quite far enough because God contemplates us back while the stake, as far as we can tell, does not. Before moving on to the third and final part of the talk, I'd like to pose two questions about the differences between Thomas's and and Aristotle's accounts and then wager a few guesses as to their answers. First, what did Thomas have other than divine revelation and a copy of Aristotle's texts, 
that allowed him to say more about contemplation than Aristotle. In other words, why did Thomas, as a philosopher, see more than Aristotle as a philosopher? My guess is that there are three distinctions that Thomas has that allows him to see more. First, Thomas has a more refined distinction between intellect and will. It's not until you compare the activity of the will against that of the intellect that you can see clearly how each of these uniquely rests in contemplation. Second, Thomas has the lived distinction between thinking and praying. Thomas knows God not only as something to be spoken about, as Aristotle did, but also as someone to be spoken to. Aristotle didn't pray to thinking, thinking, thinking. And there's a side lesson for us here. Contemplation of God's nature is good, but it shouldn't be mistaken for prayer. Third, Thomas has the distinction between essence and person. This is important because ultimately, contemplation is of an individual, not of an abstraction. To put it more loosely, and in language that Thomas never used, every act of contemplation approaches its object as a you, and never as an it. A you can't be boxed up and drained of its vitality in the way that an it can. Essences are its, and persons are you's. The second question I have about the differences between Thomas's and Aristotle's accounts is actually a question about how the accounts could have differed, but didn't. And surprise, it's actually three questions about three differences that I expected to find, but didn't. First, in his account of contemplation, Thomas doesn't cite Aristotle's famous description of the tension between a life devoted to virtuous activity and a life devoted to contemplation. Why not? One answer we can dismiss immediately is that Thomas didn't quote the text because he regarded the tension as illusory. Thomas was a Dominican, and as such, he patterned his life in silence and in preaching, in contemplating and in giving to others what he contemplated. He knew the tension experientially. My guess as to why Thomas didn't quote Aristotle's text on the tension between contemplation and action is this. Aristotle's perspective is speculative. He asks, in theory, which of these lives is better? Thomas's perspective is practical. He asks, should I contemplate God and should I do virtuous acts? And in so many words, he answers, yes. This is to say, Thomas realizes that the tension between the active life and the contemplative life isn't something we should seek to resolve, but to live. We live it best, not by following a method, but by following the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The same might be said about the task of navigating the tension between our impulse to judge and our impulse to rest from judging. It's good to make judgments so that we can get ourselves in a position to see but it's also good to rest from our efforts of trying to see so that our vision isn't clouded, so to speak, by after images of our efforts. The Holy Spirit tells us when to do each, and there is no other method. Second, Thomas doesn't cite Aristotle at all in his account of contemplation. 
even though Thomas had clearly read the text where Aristotle discusses it, and even though Thomas never hesitates to quote Aristotle elsewhere. Why? Here are two clues as to why. First, Thomas places his fullest account of contemplation in his treatment of the religious life. Second, the writers that Thomas does mention very extensively are Pseudo-Dionysius and Boethius, both of whom were Neoplatonists and Christians. These clues suggest that Thomas wanted his account of contemplation to be understood exclusively in the context of man's assent to and union with God. This is the context in which Pseudo-Dionysius and Boethius discuss contemplation. In contrast, Aristotle's account of contemplation reads more like a catalog, identifying contemplation speculatively as the greatest of all intellectual activities. In this respect, at least, Thomas is not Aristotelian. Third and lastly, given the importance of contemplation for happiness, why didn't Thomas say more about it? If we'd put this question to Thomas, I suspect his response would have been twofold. First, he would have clarified that although he said much that was not explicitly about contemplation, everything he wrote was for contemplation. All of his judgments can lead us to contemplation if we will let them. There's a practical lesson for us here. The moments of intellectus, that is, of simple, loving insight, are only at the pinnacle of the contemplative life. The rest of the life consists in judgments that prepare us for these insights. Thomas's second response to our question, I think, would be silence. Not the silence that arises from having nothing to say, but the silence that we choose because there's more to receive than to say. I'm alluding here to the end of Thomas's life, where, after receiving an extraordinary contemplative vision, Thomas stopped writing. The practical lesson here should be clear. When you behold what you love, don't turn away. Part three. It should come as no surprise that I have three pieces of advice on how to dispose yourself to contemplation. I say dispose yourself to contemplation rather than contemplate because, as any writer knows, you can grasp after an insight at a simple perception of reality for days and years and still find yourself empty-handed and empty-headed. And then, when you're waiting for the metro, you suddenly see. Intuitions ultimately are gifts. That being said, there certainly are things that we can do to prepare ourselves either to receive these gifts or to miss them entirely. My advice then on how to dispose yourself to the gift of contemplation is to notice three things. Notice first where your attention rests. This is important because each time we place our attention somewhere, it becomes easier for our attention to go there again. Attention is habit forming. The more often you count the number of carbs, protein, and fat in your food, the more likely it is that you'll notice those macros in the future. It's also important to notice where your attention rests because what you habitually attend to eventually becomes the lens through which you view all other things.
If you habitually focus on the, the macros, you'll eventually perceive all other aspects of eating, psychological, social, ritual, through this physical nutritional lens. Where your attention rests then matters. On my count, there are three places where it can rest. I'll list these, beginning with where our attention ideally rests and ending up with where we most often find it. Suppose you're taking a morning jog on the streets of DC. Your attention can rest on the things that exist independently from you. The mockingbird that picked up the sound of a cell phone ring. The two people who appear to be exchanging money on the street corner. Or the difficult person you're going to meet later in the day. Your attention can also rest on your inner responses to these things. On your delight at the mockingbird phone ring your sorrow at the deterioration of urban culture, or your dread of the upcoming meeting. Lastly, your attention can rest on your appearance, how you think you appear in the eyes of others. You imagine how your stride looks to an onlooker. When you run by a reflective window, you stop imagining and you try to see how you actually look. But you disguise your looking because you know that it looks bad to be looking at yourself. The second thing you should notice is why your attention rests wherever it rests. This is important for us to consider because not all whys, that is, not all motives for placing our attention here, are, here or there, are equally helpful or hurtful for disposing us for contemplation. There are two ultimate motives we have for moving or resting our attention, fear and desire. Suppose you're jogging again, this time with the sun to your back and your shadow running on ahead. Since you probably don't jog with your eyes closed, you notice your shadow, and you notice that your left foot flares out much more than your right. You didn't have a motive for noticing this, it just presented itself to you. You do have a response to what you notice, though, and this response, laughter, sorrow, or horror, depends on whether you think the flare-out is a good thing or a bad thing. Now suppose you come to a busy street that demands your full attention. If you survive the crossing, then you have the opportunity to voluntarily turn your attention back to your foot flare. If you look again, the ultimate reason for your doing so is either desire or fear. If you think the foot flare is funny, you'll look again just so you can be delighted by its oddity. If you think the foot flare is concerning, you'll try to measure just how far the foot flares, so later on you can check WebMD to see whether the condition is fatal. It can be challenging to determine whether fear or desire is operative in us. Here's one way of telling them apart. Being moved by desire feels like you're being drawn toward something you want. Being moved by fear feels like you're being driven away. Here's another way. Being moved by desire produces either more desire or delight. Being moved by fear produces either greater fear or relief, but never delight. It's important to discern whether we're moved by fear or desire because fear is a much greater barrier to contemplation for two reasons. First, fear tends to crowd out the interior life, both by the intensity of the emotion itself and by the number of judgments the emotion inspires. 
Consider how hard it is to think about anything else once you fearfully believe that you have a hip condition that causes your foot flare. Consider, too, how many judgments it finally takes to dispel your fear. Even after you check WebMD three times and call your aunt the runner, you're still afraid that you have an undetected hip condition, maybe even a terminal one. Second, fear hampers our ability to be amazed, to perceive the ordinary in the extraordinary. When we're afraid, we direct all our efforts toward gaining control, toward discerning the ordinary patterns that things follow, not so that we can rest in them, but so that we can ignore them and direct our attention to what breaks the pattern. Think of the last time when you were driven by the need to meet a deadline. Unless you are extraordinary, you didn't have the luxury to rest your attention on a sparrow. I'll leave it to someone else to address what we can do to break free from the dominance of fear. I'll say, however, that you'll never be free from fear if you direct all of your efforts toward running away from the activity that you wish to stop. If you're going to live, you eventually have to turn toward something you wish to begin. A third thing that you might notice or begin to notice is how your attention rests wherever it does. Does it rest there or does it bounce back and forth? A little bouncing back and forth is necessary. This is because we can only attend to one thing at a time. But we often find ourselves doing more than one thing at a time. When these multiple activities aren't entirely automatic, like digesting, we try to make do either by shifting our attention quickly between activities or by going numb and blind to the activities that we care about least. This, of course, is what we call multitasking. Multitasking is anti-contemplative for two reasons. First, if you do it often enough, it can leave you so exhausted that you don't have energy simply to, to receive. And contemplation is primarily about receiving. Second, multitasking trains you never to rest your attention on anything for longer than what's necessary. And most often, you only see things when you look for longer than what's necessary. The great danger with chronic multitasking is that we, be, we can get so accustomed to an attenuated, shallow focus that we begin to prefer this superficial way of seeing. Perhaps we feel obliged to be busy, or perhaps we fear what we'll see if we see more deeply. If you will allow me a short concluding plea, become a unitasker. Listen to music or study, but not both. The book you're reading has a different rhythm than the techno remix of the best hits of the 90s. And you can't appreciate both rhythms at the same time. Have a conversation or go for a hike, but not both. The thrill of a conversation is different from the thrill of approaching the summit. You can't appreciate both thrills at the same time. Multitaskers will think that you're weird, probably be right, but they'll also be secretly jealous. And it's not the multitaskers who will save the world. Thank <laughs> you.